Have you ever been betrayed? Ever had someone turn their back on you, acting as if they never even knew you? My guess is that most of us have experienced betrayal in some ways in our lives. In fact, I don't think you could make it through middle school and high school without that experience. But whether it was in school or business or other relationships, betrayal we know is very painful. If you have been betrayed, what did you feel? What did you think? What did you do? Have you ever been the betrayer? You ever been the one who turned your back on someone who called you a friend? You ever lived in denial of what is true? And if you have been a betrayer in a relationship, did you own up to it? What did you hope the person you hurt did in response? If you do a search online for the most notorious betrayers in history, you're going to get a number of lists. This is one of them from Laurie Dove. Let's take a look at these top 10 most notorious betrayers in history. Number 10, Cassius and Brutus. These two gentlemen were the ones who led the assassination of Caesar. Number nine, we're familiar with this guy, Judas Iscariot. This is the one who gave up Jesus for the price of a slave's wage with a brotherly kiss. Number eight, Benedict Arnold. Arnold betrayed America by offering to sell plans of the West Point Fort, including the location of the armament stores and other war secrets, to the British for an amount of money equal to about $3 million today. Number seven, Robert Ford. Ford was a member of the Jesse James gang. He decided to murder James for a $10,000 reward and a promise that his own crimes would be pardoned. He received neither. Number six, Matahari. She was a double agent of France and Germany in the early 1900s and was caught by the French and executed for her treason. Ezra Pound from Idaho was a poet, poet who influenced the fa by the fascist Mussolini and was used by Italy in radio broadcasts to rail against the U.S. He was also a public supporter of Adolf Hitler. Tokyo Rose. Number four, the Japanese-American voice on the radio used to demoralize American troops in the Pacific during World War II. Vidkun Quisling is a Norwegian army officer. He worked with the Germans while they occupied Norway. In fact, he welcomed Hitler into his country and then appointed himself as Norway's leader. This position did not last very long, but in that short time, he was able to sentence almost 1,000 Jews to concentration camps. Number two, the Cambridge Five, Harold Kim Philby, Donald McLean, Guy Burgess, Anthony Blunt, and John Cancross held to communist beliefs and shared confidential intel with Moscow from their key British intelligence positions. Their actions led to many deaths. And number one on this list is Robert Hansen, who was a 25-year FBI agent and a longtime double agent for the Soviet Union. He was responsible for revealing many secrets of the United States. There are many others throughout history whose treacherous deeds could have put them on this list. Part of what fascinates me about some of these stories is that a number of their names 
are specifically used synonymously with the word betrayer. In fact, it's not uncommon for us here in the U.S. to find someone who has betrayed us, and we call them what? Benedict Arnold. What's equally fascinating to me is what, the way many have lived their, the rest of their lives out in defeat, whether it was a quick end of the firing squad or a long-term prison sentence. And the little that I have found out about a number of these is that their lives were not lived out in victory. Even in the end, there appears to be no redemptive part of their story. They are either continuously vilified or even somewhat forgotten. The foundation upon which they laid their lives was unstable. Chasing money, fueling their pride, and even just simply clinging to what is evil. Those who are known in history for denial and betrayal do not inspire goodness. They are not the ones we should follow. History is not just replete with defeat alone, though. There are victories. Battles won, goodness spread, and towns and nations and people who have been and are being rebuilt. Rebuilt and then able to thrive and then able to help others thrive as well. People who are just as evil as those ten that we just looked at, but who instead submitted to love and then lived a life built to last for eternity. The Apostle Peter is one of those betrayers who submitted to love and then lived a life built to last. And because of his life, we have been changed. It's a familiar story to many of us But I'd like to take a look today at Peter, a part of his life, and see again and be reminded of what it looks like to have a life rebuilt. If you would, turn your Bibles to Matthew 26. Matthew 26 is the first gospel in the New Testament, 26th chapter. And in verse 26, we find another familiar part to many of us. It's the Last Supper. Verse 26, it says, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood that establishes the covenant. It is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I tell you, from this moment, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in a new way in my Father's kingdom with you. After singing psalms, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, Tonight, all of you will run away because of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been resurrected, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. The Lord shared an intimate meal with the disciples as he prepared for the cross. Always Acting as the good shepherd, Jesus worked to help the disciples thrive even though everything in their lives was about to drastically change again. The story tells of Jesus warning the men what is about to happen. He recalled the prophet Zechariah declaring that the shepherd was to be struck and the sheep would be scattered. The great prophet Jesus also foretold that he would meet the disciples in Galilee after he was resurrected. 
But in this moment, the ever-impulsive Peter speaks up in prideful protest because he simply doesn't believe what Jesus is saying. And in verse 33, Matthew 26, Peter told him, even if everyone runs away because of you, I will never run away. I assure you, Jesus said to him, tonight, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Even if I have to die with you, Peter told him, I will never deny you. And all of the disciples said the same thing. As I read Peter's declaration, the image that comes to mind is of the minion Kevin from the Despicable Me movie. He says, what? There's no way I'm going to deny you, Jesus. These other guys, they might, but I'm with you no matter what. And all the other guys are in the middle of this, yeah, 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 we're not going to run away either. There's no way. All that sounds very good and inspiring, and in fact, it's kind of what we see in a lot of movies today trying to inspire us to rally the troops. But there seems to be a problem in their understanding. See, the one who allowed Peter to walk on water is making a prediction that is not being listened to. So what is Peter's problem? What's he missing? If you would turn back with me to Matthew 16 for just a moment, because I wonder if Peter perhaps forgot who he was talking to. Matthew 16, 13 through 16 says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. See, Peter didn't know who Jesus was. So what's the problem? What is Peter not seeing from the statement that Jesus made after the Last Supper? Let's listen to Jesus' response in verse 17 to 20 after Peter tells and proclaims that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. And Jesus responded, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the forces of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. And he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. See, Peter's problem was not that he didn't know who Jesus was. He did. Peter's problem wasn't that he didn't know the Lord's kingdom would be built. He did. In fact, he knew from Jesus' statement that he would be used in that process. Peter's problem was pride. His impulsive and fleshly reactions oozed out of him. What he forgot was that Jesus himself declared that he was the one that was going to build the church. Jesus forgot, uh, Peter forgot that, that his knowledge even of the Messiah was bestowed on him. It was given to him, not realized by his own fleshly power. 
Warren Wiersbe says this, Peter, when Peter disagreed with the Lord, this was the beginning of his sin of denying the Lord. Peter was unwilling to apply the word all to himself. Instead of reassuring Peter, the, the Lord gave him a personal warning. He would deny Christ three times. Peter thought he was better than the other men, and Jesus told him, when, told him he would e be even more cowardly than the others. Peter's response was to deny Christ's word even more fervently, and the other disciples joined in the protest. Had Peter listened to the word and obeyed it, it would, he would not have denied his Lord three times. End quote. See, Peter's problem was that he was relying on his own flesh. He did not heed the warning and exhortation of the Lord. He did not accept the Lord's plan. As Pastor Wayne says, aren't you glad we're not like that? Or are we? See, the Scriptures are clear that my best works are filthy rags. There's no way that I can obey the Lord on my own power. All have sinned and none are righteous. This is the very reason why Jesus came. We need a Savior to escape the wages of our sin. But the word is equally clear that by the power of the Holy Spirit, I can walk faithfully with my Lord. I can hate what He hates and love as He does. Not on my own power, but solely on His. And in the story of Peter, Jesus actually references this too in the garden shortly after the disciples defiantly declare that they will never run away. Jesus goes to the garden to pray. And in verse 36, Matthew 26, it says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he told the disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking along Peter and the sons, two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Going a little farther, he face, fell face down and prayed, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He asked Peter, So couldn't you stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The Spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. John Walvoord makes this observation. He says, after his first prayer and petition, Jesus returned to the three disciples who probably were very near and found them asleep. Matthew records that he addressed his words to Peter in Mark 14, 37, adds Simon. The address, however, was in the plural. What, could ye not watch with me one hour? In the hour of Christ's supreme need, Peter, who had affirmed that he would die with his Lord, could not even keep awake. Recognizing the limitation of the human flesh, Jesus exhorted them. Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Christ did not question their desire to stay alert, but their will was not equal to the occasion. End quote. See, Peter's inability to even stay awake at the Lord's request to pray showed he was on the path 
to denial and betrayal of Jesus. Relying on our own flesh doesn't lead to honoring the Lord. Bold vows to God don't stand the test of time on their own. Our fleshly words and deeds are burned up. Peter even tried once again to show his loyalty, but was again mistaken in his impulsive efforts. Let's pick up the scene in Matthew 26 where Judas has come to betray Jesus. Verse 50, friend, Jesus asked him, why have you come? Then they came up, took hold of Jesus, and arrested him. At that point, one of of those with Jesus reached out his hand and drew his sword. He struck the high priest slave and cut off his ear. Then Jesus told him, put your sword back in its place because all who take up a sword will perish by a sword. Or do you think that I cannot call on my Father and he will provide me at once with more than 12 legions of angels? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? John 18.10 identifies the one who pulled the sword as Peter. Surely you and I have not made the same mistake as Peter and tried to force our will into a situation. Surely we haven't made a hasty vow before the Lord and men, which now we must so desperately try to keep. All the while we miss the whole revealed plan of the Father that is right before us. And when we do that, we hurt someone else. Surely, that doesn't apply to us. Jesus was arrested and the illegal trial began. Peter, still trying to prove his allegiance to Jesus because he made a vow, tried to see what was happening, and he followed Jesus in the crowd. Luke's gospel account records that there was a group of people sitting around a fire in the courtyard while Jesus was being tried in the high priest's palace. Matthew, again in 26, describes the scene this way, verse 69. It says, Now Peter was sitting outside the courtyard. A servant girl approached him, and she said, You were with Jesus the Galilean too. But he denied it in front of everyone. I don't know what you're talking about. One. When he had gone out to the gateway, another woman saw him and told those who were there, this man was with Jesus the Nazarene. And again, he denied it with an oath, I don't know the man. Two. After a little while, those standing there approached and said to Peter, you certainly are one of them, since even your accent gives you away. Then he started to curse and to swear with an oath, I do not know the man. A.T. Robertson comments on verses 73 and 74. The bystanders came up to Peter and bluntly assert that he was of a truth, one of the followers of Jesus, for his speech betrayed him. His dialect clearly revealed that he was a Galilean. The Galileans had difficulty with the gutturals, and Peter's second denial had exposed him to the tormenting raillery of the loungers who continued to nag him. He repeated his denial with the addition of profanity to prove that he was telling the truth instead of the lie that they all knew. His repeated denials gave him away still more, for he could not pronounce the Judean gutturals. 
He called down on himself imprecations in his desperate irritation and loss of self-control at his exposure. End quote. Hey kids, I bet if you ask your parents that they could tell you of times that they knew you were lying just by the way you sounded. See, Peter's pronunciation in his statement alone betrayed him. Everyone knew he was lying. The more he protested, the more it was clear that he was not telling the truth. Peter's substance had been exposed. He himself was burned by the fire, pun intended. You and I have never done that, right? So adamantly protested our wrongdoing. Verse 74, Matthew 26. It says, immediately a rooster crowed and Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Luke 22, 61 to 62 records it this way. It says, immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. You ever had your parents catch you doing something you shouldn't be doing and give you that look? You know the look. They tried to help you understand the situation. They warned you. They advised you what you should do. And then you made your choice. And then came the look. But now imagine for a moment the creator of the universe. The creator of the universe with all of his power, all of his purpose, and the love of a good shepherd that, that he is, and he caught Peter's eye from across the courtyard as Peter is profanely denying that he even knows him. Caught in his denial, which he so vehemently protested would never even happen, all Peter could do was step outside and weep. He was broken. And he began to recognize that the Lord was indeed correct. And he himself was not. What now? Is it over? See, too often succumbing to our flesh leads us to think that it is over. But the very one Peter denied knowing and the same one that every person has rebelled against is in fact a rebuilder. His very nature is love. And he extends that love to redeem and to restore that which was broken. One of the first purchases that Jenny and I made together as newlyweds was a rocking chair. We were walking through one of those multi-booth consignment stores and thought this chair would make a great addition to our little apartment, and so we bought it. We took it home. She recovered the seat, and it's been in our house ever since. Recently, that chair broke. 
the top rail had snapped off while I was in the middle of a trim project at the house, and since I had my nail gun in my hand, I decided to try to secure the rail with the nails. This was futile. As I examined the rail a little bit more, I realized that the dowels that it was used to, that was used to build it needed to be drilled out and replaced to secure this rail back in place. Now, the problem is I'm a wannabe carpenter. I have built a few pieces of furniture in my life. I have done a number of projects with trim, and I'm learning, and I enjoy it, but rebuilding and refinishing woodwork is not on my list of things I'm great at. So there was talk about getting rid of the chair and letting someone else fix it and deal with it. But honestly, my heart couldn't take it. It's just a silly chair, and it's probably not worth any money, but I didn't want to get rid of it. And I typically like to get rid of stuff. But that chair reminded me of my bride and the time that we spent that day shopping at the beginning of our new life together. So I put the chair back together. Carefully, methodically, I pulled the nails out that I should not have put there in the first place. And I drilled out the old broken dowels, put new dowels in with some good glue. It's stronger than it was before. It's rebuilt. See, the rebuilder finds worth in that which is broken. And the resurrected Lord sought to rebuild and restore Peter's life. He chased after Peter, even after Peter so profanely denied him. And if you look at the gospel account of Mark 16, after the resurrection of Jesus, the women are going to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus. And then when they get there, they find an angel. And the angel says, don't be alarmed. He told them, you are looking for Jesus of Nazarene who was crucified. He has been resurrected. He's not here. See the place where they put him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. The angel said, but go tell his disciples and Peter. See, the Lord specifically wanted Peter to know that he still wanted to see him even after his denial. Jesus went about preparing all of the disciples for their life ahead, including Peter. He appeared to the disciples a couple times to show them that he was alive before he met them in Galilee. The process of rebuilding and restoring Peter had begun. Luke 24, 34 actually indicates that Jesus had already appeared to Peter before the famous scene that we find in John 21. If you would, turn with me to John 21. Get to John 21, the disciples have made it back to Galilee, just as Jesus told them to do. And by Peter's lead, they're fishing again. They're on the boat fishing. Morning comes, and Jesus stands on the shore and calls out, hey, boys, catch anything? That actually is the term that is used, hey, boys. That's what it means. They didn't know it was Jesus yet, and they played No. Put the net on the right side of the boat. You'll find some. They do as the man on the shore said, and the net was overwhelmed with fish. John, 
realizes that it's Jesus who is talking to them and makes that proclamation. And immediately Peter puts on his clothes and swims 100 yards to shore. Jesus had prepared a fire, made breakfast with the food that he provided himself before and after the fishing and invited the guys to eat with them. And then in verse 15, it says, When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told them. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. I assure you, Peter, when you were young, you would, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to signify by what kind of death he would glorify God. And after saying this, he told him, follow me. Dr. Tom Constable says, Jesus then repeated his original command to Peter to follow him from Mark 1.17. This is a present imperative in the Greek text, meaning keep on following. And Edward Blum it says, obedience to Jesus' command, follow me, is the key issue in every Christian's life. As Jesus followed the Father's will, so his disciples should follow their Lord, whether the path leads to a cross or some other difficult circumstance. See, being restored leads to a life of being useful. Being restored means a life of following Jesus. The rebuilder did not go to the cross that we would continue to walk in our own flesh and our own desires. He did not intend for us to live the same way we did before we knew him. Those who believe in Jesus have been redeemed in order that we may follow the Lord, not sit on the sidelines and find ways to deny him again and again and again. But we are more than conquerors who are empowered by the Spirit of God to walk in a manner worthy of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Peter, the rock, was rebuilt by the Lord. His rugged heart was turned over and over and smoothed out so that he could follow Jesus faithfully unto death. Peter was not done. His statement to Jesus on the third question of, do you love me, revealed Peter was understanding where knowledge and power came from. You know all things. You know that I love you. He loved because Jesus first loved him. His denials, his own fleshly works were not going to be his identity. He is not one of the betrayers who wasted away in oblivion. His name is not one we vilify thousands of years later. He is remembered in history for redemption and building to last. And after Jesus showed Peter his purpose of declaring who he was to others, leading others to proclaim the Messiah, which would eventually lead to Peter's martyrdom, 
Peter stood before thousands and proclaimed Jesus crucified and resurrected. A rebuilt life was used by God to rebuild and restore others. And if you look in Acts 2, beginning in verse 36, you find the conclusion of Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And he says, it says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When they heard this, they came under deep conviction and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what must we do? Repent. Peter said to them, and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day 3,000 people were added to them. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. The rebuilder moved in the heart of Peter in such a way that he was used to influence you and I even today. How is that for a legacy? From denial to redemption. We find these words of Peter written in his first letter to those believers dispersed in Rome, in 1 Peter 4.11, says, If anyone speaks, it should be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, it should be from the strength God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him belong the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So it seems that Peter had learned his lesson. Peter had learned to rely on the Lord and glorify him instead of chasing after his own efforts and trying to prove his own worth. No matter what denial and betrayal of the truth you and I have participated in, whether that was just this morning, we have the opportunity like Peter to walk in redemption, to be restored for a life of following Jesus and helping others to do the same. If we want to live a life that is built to last, then we must honor the one who rebuilt our lives. Don't deny him. Don't deny his plan. Follow him by the power of the Spirit and watch what the rebuilder does through you that will last for eternity. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are humbled to think of the work that you did for us. That all of our protesting, all of our denial, all of our rebellion, you were willing to pay the price for and willing to give us another chance and to offer us hope and life and peace. And for that, we are grateful. Father, too often in our lives we, we fight for our own stuff in our own way. Father, I know that I must confess that that is a battle that I try to do things on my own flesh and my own way instead of simply relying on you. And I ask that you would forgive me and I ask that you would help each one of us to grow in that knowledge.
If you would continue bowing your heads and closing your eyes. Perhaps you are in this room or listening and you do not know this, Jesus. You are still wallowing in your denial and protest, wallowing in the filth of your sin. I pray that the Spirit of God convicts you and that you are cut to the heart like the people at Pentecost and you see that all you need to do is turn to Jesus. Trust him because he died on the cross and he rose again and he's offering you life and my, my challenge to you is that you submit to his love and gain new life, a life that is rebuilt by him. If you know Jesus, I, I ask that you would thank him for your salvation that we would stop and recognize that he loves you and that he is working in you. And if there's any sin to confess of you doing things your own way and not relenting to his plan, confess that. And let's take a few moments to pray. Father, thank you for taking what was broken and rebuilding it. Thank you for doing that in me. Thank you that you're not done with me. That there's still some smoothing out that needs to be done, and I pray that you would help me to listen to that. I pray for my friends here, too, that they would do the same. Father, there is a very practical way that you have given to us about what it means to submit to you and and honor you, and that is in our offering. And as we take that today, we ask that you would um, allow us to do that joyfully, help us to do that joyfully. And God, we ask that you would use every, every bit of this money to help other people know that you are the rebuilder, the one who brings new life. In Jesus' name, amen.